Welcome to the More Exemplary Podcast, a study in joyful living. I'm your host, Nick Bogner, a marriage and family therapist practicing in Pasadena, California. In this podcast, I'm talking to some of my favorite professionals, both inside and outside the world of therapy, to learn how they cultivate happiness by accessing their own joy and enriching the lives of others. Thanks for coming along for the ride. I'm so glad you're with us. Ariel Hirsch, welcome to my Instagram TV feed and to the More Exemplary podcast. For those, for those of you who don't know, I invited Ariel to talk with me today because she's, in, in addition to being one of my favorite people to talk to, somebody who always has a, a really insightful comment on virtually any topic. And I, I really like that. And I also want you to know that, you know, now that we've set the bar that high, that's the bar that you have to I'll have nothing to say now. That's what I think. <laughs> This is really good. I just I just invite people. I raise the bar super high, and then I make myself look good. Isn't that wonderful? How you can just narcissistically like, yeah, whirl it around. Steer the ship exactly. So the topic is healing, and you astutely, I think, um, called me on that when we were having our discussion a couple of days ago, and said that's a really enormous topic um, yeah. for a half hour, and you're 100 percent right. It is too broad of a topic. So I thought we would just skim the surface here. Yeah hopefully open ourselves up for more conversations later. But the first thing I wanted to start with here is what is, because I think we don't often think about this. I think we think about the, the, um, the wounds a lot. We think about how much discomfort we're in. We think about how much things hurt, but I don't think we think a lot about what healing looks like, both in its process and at the end. Like, what am I actually going for here when I try to heal? So I'll put it to you. What do you think healing looks like? Yeah, I mean, that's such a good question. And I think maybe sometimes it is specific to, to the wound as well. But I, I guess healing to me is sort of like having access to like turning the dial down on the pain, right? On sort of whatever the particular wound is. So it's sort of that some, some wounds will never go away, right? And so healing doesn't mean fully closed. It just means a lot quieter. Right. So that for me is sort of like a nice general sense of what healing is. And also I think just the sort of access to self-awareness. I think for me, that's something I really like when I think about healing is just noticing things more and then being able to, in that awareness, change those things. Because if you don't know that you're sort of operating maybe out of that wound, you can't then even access healing or move towards healing without awareness. So I guess that's a very broad answer to that question because it's a very large question. Well, it's, just, yeah. Sorry. It sounds like adaptability. It sounds like the because you can't make something that's shitty not shitty, um, yeah. and you can't unhurt yourself, but you can sort of know more about yourself and change yourself and your lifestyle, your behaviors, your beliefs in a way that allows you to suffer less. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, yeah. And in some ways, I guess that's sort of just like building resiliency too, and sort of yeah. tolerating things differently. Um, but. Yeah, I think also there's so many things that you need before you can access healing. I mean, I think it's just, you know, thinking about COVID times and stuff right now, if you if you talk about like a hierarchy of needs, right? Like you need to have also a fundamental level of safety first before you can even access that healing. So sort of those things do need to come first. And then from there, that might look really different depending on what you're working on. Well, see, I, I agree with you totally on that. And I, that's sort of my fundamental first step for healing that I tell people about is safety. If you are in the process of, of healing and the same thing can happen to you or the same person can come by and re-traumatize you, I don't know how helpful um, really running, charging towards the process of healing is going to be. In my yeah. notion, you have to be safe first and then you can start to lick your wounds, so to speak. Um, yeah. 
and feel better. Have you noticed that to be the case too? Yeah. Well, I mean, and so in that example, are you speaking to sort of someone who has wounded someone or like, you like, you know, an abusive parent or like an abusive relationship? I'm using abusive as that term. It doesn't have to be, but sort of, is that what you mean by like removing that access to that particular thing hurting you again. Yeah, absolutely. So like, let's say, let's say a relationship, let's take infidelity, because that's one that people are often really curious about, at least for me. Mm. Um, So let's say you have two partners, one partner cheats on the other partner, and the other partner wants to heal, and it's important to heal, and they're clearly suffering. But by the same token, if you're not sure or reasonably sure that the other partner is not going to just go out and cheat on you again, then what good is it going to do for any of us? And I'm open to you not agreeing with me on this, but like, what good would it do to heal from that wound if, in fact, you haven't, you're not in a situation where your partner's not going to keep cheating on you? Oh, yeah. I mean, that makes sense, but that's also right. So then is that the healing is then first you need to... Because then in that sense, it sort of sounds like you need to remove the partner, which you are always <laughs> to do, right? Or I guess the partner has to then sort of reestablish the trust. trust. Right, yeah. and, and has to demonstrate, I think, um, and in the times I've worked with the infidelity, I've noticed this to be the case, has to really demonstrate their commitment um, yeah. to doing things differently and has to, I think, in a lot of ways, demonstrate that they know that what they did was wrong and not because it broke a rule, but because it's because it actually hurt the partner and because it actually betrayed the trust. And that's a really hard one is like, you know, because people have their own reasons for cheating and, you know, couples therapists will be the first to tell you that, you know, there's always two people in a couple and infidelities, you know, sometimes happen because of what both partners are doing. But I think that if it's to be decided that we're not going to continue to be unfaithful to each other in this relationship, that person needs to know why in a real sense. Yeah. Well, I think that's, right? The demonstration of trust like that. Cause I think a lot of people will be like, Oh, it's done. Trust me now. And it's like, but you have to demonstrate that something has changed. Right. And yeah. I think that with a lot of different things, not even just infidelity, but you know, even if you hurt someone or like you're asking for forgiveness or you're sort of moving towards healing in that sense, how is the other person actually taking action to demonstrate that that change is happening versus right. just like, Oh, I'm done with that thing. It's like, or I'm not going to do that thing to you anymore that I keep, you keep telling me not to do. Right. Yeah. So like, demonstration of that is so so important and a lot of people don't do that or it's really hard it's, it is really hard you know? yeah or they do the opposite which is a thing i've seen you know in times when you work with infidelity and and the partner that is um that is working to build back trust will just say like i'm not doing it anymore like why can't you trust me and then answering that question i feel like is central to the healing for both partners yeah yeah that that yes that makes a lot of yeah. Earlier you said turning down the dial on suffering. And that made me think of EMDR, which I've had as a client. I don't know if you've had it as a client, but I myself have done it many times. And I've done it as a clinician too. Um, and that was the real experience for me in that moment. Those of you who are watching or listening and don't know, that's eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And it's a, a process of stimulating uh, both spheres of hemispheres of the brain in order to revisit a trauma and experience it in a way um, where you like your brain would have processed it if you weren't being traumatized. And I know that for myself, working on some of my traumas in EMDR, it really was that experience of like, wow, it, it really made a six into a one, you know, like something or, you know, an eight into a two, like something that was really, really painful. I could look at it and it, it didn't often change the texture of the memory very much, but I just didn't feel that terrible stabbing, um, you know, that horrible traumatic pain that besets us. Yeah. 
EMDR, I think, is like magic. Like truly, it is, I think, mind-blowing, just the, the effectiveness of that process. And I've done it as a client, but not a clinician. I'm not mm. trained in EMDR. But I do think it's incredible, the fact that it, that just sort of, yeah, reprocessing, sort of talking to ourselves, talking through that process with someone else, bringing in... It's just, it's so imaginal, right? Because the whole thing happens in your imagined sense in your mind, going back to these memories. But yeah, you absolutely can turn down the access to pain in that moment. And it's not like, haha, just this moment, like it really turns right. it down moving forward. And that I think is a really incredible, like concrete example of, of healing of like, oh, wow, this thing can really truly change in my somatic experience. It's wild. Yeah. It's almost, it's, it's interesting because when EMDR is effective, it's so effective yeah. that it's just kind of mind blowing. There's yeah. ways, times at which at least, you know, it, it puts a lot of other kinds of therapy to shame, which is, you know, painful to admit a little bit because I love practicing the other forms of therapy and I enjoy doing EMDR, but I really love and relish talk therapy and, you know, yeah. the deep work and looking inside ourselves. But man, in a lot of cases, and obviously not in every case, for trauma, you just couldn't do much better, at least with what we know now than know. EMDR, right? No, yes. I should get that training. I keep meaning <laughs> to. I mean, it's a really involved process. And I think also like you need to know what you're doing because it's also right. really fertile ground for re-traumatizing people if you don't know what you're doing. So it's, you know, that, that means just, it's important to find then the right practitioner that you feel good and safe and safe, right? There's, I mean, you yeah. need to be going into that because you're going into heavy shit, right? Like going into the hardest, you know, deepest recesses of your heart and mind and trusting the person you're with is really, really important. So I think also that's one of the things in EMDR people don't quite no, it's like it takes a while before you actually start the EMDR, the actual yeah. like building. Resourcing, yeah. Yeah, and getting to know your therapist and that safety being established. I think people don't think that. They're like, come on, I want to jump in right away. It's like, we got to. <laughs> take it easy, fella. Come on, it's going to take a minute. Well, yeah. that's, I love that you brought up safety again. And that's really important, you know, and as clinicians, I feel like we tell this, but I, I worry that people aren't always listening closely, which is that like, it, you should have a clinician that you feel safe with. Yeah. Um, and that's just really important. And any, you know, reasonable clinician is going to understand, even if it's, you know, and hopefully not make it about them, that even if they're doing their best and you still don't feel safe with them, that it's better for them to help you find somebody else um, that you're going to really click with. Because, yeah, you don't want to go into these deep, painful traumas with somebody that you don't feel safe with. Could you imagine climbing down into a cave? You know, it's like three feet off the ground. You're crawling. You're wearing a torch. You know, like you could be, you could, or I guess a flashlight on your head, whatever that thing is. Like, you know, you can get out, but you don't fully know that the person who's crawling two feet behind you <laughs> is a safe person for you. I'm going to try to make everything um, mining. And that's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to stick fully to that industry. I'm going to go into strip mining, digging canaries, dynamite. We're gonna, That's going to be the theme for today, not healing. Well, and I think that's, you know, I, I, I realize that's one thing that being a therapist, I think I forget about. When I also say to people, you want to feel safe with them, people don't necessarily know what that means, right? Or sort of they'll be right. like, well, I just know I don't feel bad with them yet, right? Sort of like, I just know that I don't feel judged by them yet. And I think also that's a great place to start because you also don't get that safe safety right away. But right. I think as a therapist, I'm like, oh yeah, go in, see if you feel safe. And people are like, like <laughs> no. And then I think it's just like, do you like the person? Do you feel not judged by them? Do you feel like, you know, you can op start the process of opening up? And that, once again, I think that's the thing too with healing. Most things, this takes 
time, right? There's like time and safety and dedication. And it's not just like you healed and you're safe and you like your therapist. Like it takes time and trust. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and I think that's something that, you know, hopefully we can get the word out about is that, you know, it does really take time to heal, right? Like just the same way your body takes time to heal. If you have a sprain or if you have a cut or a wound where you get sick, like your body takes days or weeks or years to heal and our brains and our hearts are the same way, right? Like, you, you know, you, unfortunately you can't walk right in and change it. So you better sit with somebody that you sort of enjoy and trust because you're probably going to be there for a while and it would be better to do that journey with somebody that's, you feel, you know, attached to in some way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I wish we could just heal real fast, but also, you know, there would be no therapist, but also I would be fine with that. If uh, yeah, exactly. It's, it's sort of bittersweet. I know I'd find another job. Yes. Um, but it would be sad. It'd be a sad day. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So can I get political here for a minute? Sure. Okay. So everybody's hurting right now. Um, and, and, you know, maybe, maybe some people have been really hurting all along and people that look like me and you didn't see it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but between all of the huge isms that are, rearing their heads right now um, to say nothing of COVID, you know, and the enormous schisms and pain that people are feeling, what does healing look like for all of us um, Mm. outside of the therapy process? Like what about as a culture and as a, as a country, you know, how do we heal from this? Do you like that? Do you like those big questions? Yeah. I was like, really Nick, I'm supposed to answer this question. Okay. That's part A of the question. Part B is give me numbers. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. I mean, it's such a big question, right? I think, well, I mean, and some of it is, I think, turning towards the wound, admitting that the wound is there, I think as a country, right? Like, especially with the fact that like you, like the country needs to admit how bad its history is first, right? Right. And I think think that right now there's so much struggle because I think we're just getting that to even be established it's like Mm -hmm. slavery was bad slavery was such a fundamental slavery animal it's like native american genocide like the foundation of our country is a wound Mm -hmm. is a moral gaping hole of horribleness so it's (laughs) like how do we turn towards that and acknowledge that first and i think that that's why so much of our country i mean i mean i don't there's so much there's so much but that needs i think happen before healing can truly happen, that people have to be heard in that pain, that it's like, this is real. We have to acknowledge that and give that room to move forward. Yeah. Um, but I love that phrase, turning toward the wound. And in fact, that's going to be the title. Uh, I, I almost, for a second, considered changing the title of this episode to a, a gaping moral <laughs> horror uh, <laughs> hole of horribleness. Uh, but we're going to stick with turning toward the wound because I think you're dead on with that one. And like any disease, if you don't admit that you're sick, then it is highly unlikely that you're just going to heal on your own. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But the good news is if you do admit you're sick, then you have power um, and you have the ability to, to cleanse and heal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean that, you know, even this, the, the, the admitting to go like, I need therapy. I want therapy. Sort of like going to that, like that says, okay, there's something I'm struggling with and going towards that struggle will help me get through that. So I think as a country, I think a lot of us right now just we're turning towards it. And for some people that's really new. For most people that is not new. And then it's just 
now what, right? Sort of how once, now that we've turned towards it, does that mean things have to get destroyed again before they can start to go forward? I don't, I don't know. I don't have the answers to that. Well, they kind of have, they kind of have that saying that, you know, you, you can't get over something, you have to get through it. And there's a part of me that thinks, I mean, as much as that's kind of a platitude on a sampler, there's an element of truth to it, right? Like we have to, we have to go through this thing because if we go around it again, then we're going to start to get things like I got when I was a kid. I had a high school teacher. I grew up in the South. I had a high school teacher teach me that the Civil War was not about slavery. Like I remembered it. I could name names. I won't, but I could name names. And like, <laughs> and you know, like I think that's an element of like, okay, we glazed over this thing. We kind of didn't make it right. We kind of right. didn't learn our lesson. We learned that it wasn't that it wasn't pretty. And we learned that people didn't want to know this about us. And yeah. so we invented a thing that it wasn't about this. And that's, that's where we're moving on. Yeah. That's just kind of a gross scar, right? It's like a scar yeah. over an infection. Right. I mean, like, yeah, in my apartment complex, some, I think somewhere there's like a bee's nest and like, or like a bee's thing. And they just kept painting over it. And then the oh bees, like they would just sort of pretend it wasn't there, like plaster over the spot where it started. And they would just keep expanding. Like the bees weren't going away. The foundation was still there. Like some of them were still living in there and it just kept like expanding. And I'm like, you can't just pretend that's not there. But I mean, that's a bizarre example, but you know what I mean? Just sort of like, if you keep pretending these things aren't real, they will truly never move forward to change. Like you can't do that for actually okay. occur. Two things. Yeah. Number one, that honey tastes like dog shit. You know it, right? Like it's just latex and <laughs> latex Blackbird and paint, chemical, it, right? honey, ugh. Yeah, it's awful. And the second thing is, I feel like if nothing else, we're churning out really heavy duty metaphors today between the beehive um, and the mines and the scars. Like, this is yeah. a highly abstract conversation we're having here. I guess, but I, I feel like that's what healing brings up, though, because it is such a big topic. And I, I also just love, I love sort of accessing metaphors in that way, too, using metaphors to sort of especially for healing, because there's so many ways that you can sort of paint that picture and explain that process to someone outside of their own experience that makes it just more accessible. It's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Well, and maybe that's the answer to the original question of what healing looks like. Maybe the thing is that it's hard to imagine. If you have been assaulted, it is hard to imagine going back to, like you won't ever go back to a life where you were not assaulted. Yeah. So then the question is, how do you even know what it will look like for you Right. when you heal from this thing. And so we, you know, we make paint pictures and make metaphors, right? Yeah. That's such a good point though. I mean, I think healing is something you just have to aim towards and it just starts to feel its way into your existence as each, like as step, each step of the way. But I think mm-hmm. that's the thing, like, I, I feel like in a lot of the processing I've done, it's like, you don't quite know until you're at the other side. Oh, I guess I peeled through that thing. Cause now right. I think that thing and it feels less painful or like, it doesn't matter to me or it doesn't cross my mind anymore at all, but it's hard to do it one while you're in the process or two, if you're still in the pain of the experience. And sometimes you also need some time before you can turn back towards the wound, especially something like, like assault. If we use that example, sometimes living in that wound for too long, like you can't, you can't be there. Sometimes you need some distance. Other times you need to turn towards it, but it really depends. Yeah. Well, and I think we were aiming in, on some level, maybe that's part of it too, is that we're aiming for the reduction of a symptom. And it's way harder to notice the reduction of a symptom than it is to notice the introduction of a, of a symptom. So if we're saying we want to feel less pain, ultimately we're not great, I think, at noticing that. 
unless mm-hmm. we're really looking for it. But if we said, I want to feel joy or I want to feel contentment, we are good at noticing that because it's something that, that hits us. And so maybe that's a part of the process too, is like, you need to, you need to be actually be looking for this inside yourself so that you'll notice if and when it actually does go away. And EMDR was like that for me, bringing it back to EMDR, where I had a thing where I processed a sort of a big T trauma. Um, and then like the next day, I thought about it and it just hit me in a totally different yeah. fucking way. And a yeah. symptom that I thought was unrelated went away too. So it's magic. So when are you going to get that training? That's my question. I mean... I don't know. In COVID times, everything's hard now. I mean, in terms of like, I could do an online training, I guess, but I just don't know. I guess I could. Well, because even the EMGR that I was doing sort of on, like you could just do the the processing. Yeah, on, yeah. You don't even need the buzzers, which if folks don't know what that means, you usually use these little hand buzzers to stimulate the bilateral brain. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I should do that. It's expensive. You totally do that. It's also very expensive. So it is. It is, although you know, if I, I, have, I mean, if we're going to talk business here, I have found that people really like MDR, and it ends up paying for itself reasonably quickly. That's true, um, and it is very helpful. I'm amazed that people do it online, and I, and I, it's certainly not something I'm against. It's something I don't do um, yeah. because, <clears throat> for me, I don't feel confident enough um, mm. in my ability to do it online. But there are people who are far more seasoned EMDR therapists than I am who are doing it online and, and apparently doing a really good job with it. So I, you know, yeah. my hats off to them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about the work that you do do pre EMDR um, training, because I know people are going to hear this and I know that they're going to want to, uh, I mean, I normally I'd say fly to Los Feliz and see you, but ultimately to boot up their computers and to um, have a virtual connection with you. Tell me a little bit more about the work that you do. Yeah. I mean, I'm an MFT, but I only, I actually only see adults right now. So no couples. Um, mm-hmm. And I mostly work with young women, but not exclusively women, but that tends to be my, my population is sort of like yeah. young creatives working through various relationship struggles, a lot of anxiety. Um, and I work, I mean, if we're talking about like modalities and stuff, I do feel fairly eclectic, sort of my, my training is in gestalt, but I'm noticing that I've gone a little bit more towards CBT fairly sure, competitive sure. in that way, but it's a big mix of stuff. Um, but I just really like working with people who are, reflecting on their patterns and sort of ready to sort of interrupt some of that stuff and, and look at things a little bit differently. So it's fun and hard. And One of the things that I most appreciate about you when we talk um, is that I, I feel like you are a person who, who has anxiety and is really, um, really human about it, really vulnerable about it and able to discuss it. Like, you know, we're like, as opposed to, I think a lot of times we feel pressure, especially in collegial situations to like really um, hide the parts of ourselves that are the most human. I really love how real you are. I guess that's the thing that I want to say, right? Um, thank you. Oh, thank you. And so my, and that to me makes it easy to talk to you, especially about anxiety. And so my question is, is that part of your work with clients too? Or is that something that you're just very generous with me about? Like if you, are you I can able my anxiety? <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, you know, owning that with people. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, yeah, it's just so funny. I, I realize that like I claim anxiety very quickly. I, I kind of, it, <laughs> I always just cause it's so, it's so true for me, but in a way that like, it blows my mind when it's not true for other people. Like you're not anxious. Who are yeah. you? What yeah, what's that? your pathology? Jesus. How, exactly. Like how are you not? <laughs> 
But I mean, I noticed that for myself, like, but if I'm leaning towards depression, I have a lot harder time owning that, but like I can own my anxiety very well. So I, I've been noticing that and thinking, oh, that's interesting. But I do, I think I'm, I don't know. I, I think the folks who are drawn to me maybe just notice that same energy within me. I feel less anxious in, in session with my clients, um, especially people I've been seeing for a long time, I, but my anxiety doesn't show up in that way. But if they're talking about their anxiety, I might say like, yeah, we, as in those people with anxiety, like right. I don't, it's something I don't have, but I also just don't want to pull the focus or make it about me, of course. But like, course. yeah, I don't know. I think that's one thing I try to, just authenticity is really important to me and humor and just sort of being a human in the space. I really don't adhere to sort of the blank slate therapist thing. It just doesn't sure. make sense. Like I'm a human in the room and that is how we then become trusting of each other. So I think in that sense, it probably just comes through, but yeah. not in like, oh, I'm sitting here and I'm in an anxious way, but oh, like, of course. Like, <laughs> like, like I'm no. a therapist, but like, no, like I'm just, yeah, I relate to it as a, just a part of my being and I'm like, okay, so how do we look at this? And then work within it and pay attention to why, what's informing it and why it's alive in these moments and not in these ones. And yeah, I just have a lot of curiosity around it. So, I regret that we are out of time, but I want to make yeah. sure before we go, number one, thank you so much for making time for thank me for and for us me. and for all the people else. Oh, anytime. Oh, you have a, an open invitation back. Yay. So, and next time I'll give you a really specific uh, topic. Yeah, it's exactly. It's going to be like arithmetic easy. It's going to be like, you know, okay, so we're just going to run through some times tables here. Oh, um, don't do that. I will not be going to that. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> That'll bring your anxiety up and then we can talk about it. But for those people who are listening um, and want to uh, know what you're up to, um, and I can cut this out if you want me to, but I hope that you'll mention the embroidery. Sure. Uh, those people that want to know what you're up to clinically and in a craft work sense, um, yeah. how can they find you? How can they look you up? Yeah. So you can access, you can find me on my website, which so is arielhirsch.com. That's if you're looking for therapy, you can find me there. Um, I do have an embroidery account on Instagram that is not for clinical work in any way, but it is sort of an intersection of my creative self and like my mental health self. Like it, it sort of focuses on. It's crazy good. It's, it, if I can say it's almost counter therapeutic because if you ever want to access your not enoughness, go see what Ariel is doing with a fucking needle and thread and then, and then learn just how not enough you are. Learn, <laughs> learn how much you need to go back to your day job. She's a magician. Oh my God. That's nice of you, but I don't want you to feel that way when you look at it. Okay. It's, it's for fun. But yeah, it's like, I, I mean, you know, it's also silly because it's like there's pop culture and a lot of like musical quotes and, but and, you know, it's a little bit earnest, a little cheesy in its way, but I think. What's it's just this, fun. Did you mention the name of the. No, oh yeah. It's called, it's called Bitsy Stitches. Bitsy like, Stitches. So Bitsy dot stitches at Instagram. It's at, I was going to say Instagram.com at Instagram. <laughs> on Instagram. Um, but that's. Dial three, two, three. <laughs> But yeah, but if you're looking for therapy, then absolutely my website. But if you're just sort of trying to, you know, see what I'm doing on on the lines online, then that's where it'll be. All right, folks. So uh, make sure that you check out arielhirsch.com at bitsy.stitches on Instagram um, and see what this person's all about. And you will be very glad that you did. Ariel, thank you so much for being here awesome. Thank you so much, Nick. That's it for this episode of the More Exemplary Podcast. If you'd like to have a question answered on the More Exemplary Podcast, please send an email to moreexemplary at gmail.com. If you're interested in transforming your life, whether it's romantically, professionally, historically, or any other way through psychotherapy, please visit me at www.nickbognertherapy.com. 
If you love this podcast, please tell all your friends about it. And if you don't have any friends, then please tell some strangers about it in a not creepy way. Subscribing and leaving positive reviews helps me to be able to make more episodes of this podcast. And if you're still listening at this point, then I suspect you've fallen asleep with your earbuds in. Sleep well, and I can't wait to join you for the next episode of the More Exemplary Podcast.